0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another fascinating show. Paula Vale here, and I am just thrilled and excited to share with you an amazing man. We have with us today John Perkins. He is a New York Times bestselling author and activist whose 10 books on global intrigue shamanism and transformation including touching the Jaguar which is an amazing book shape shifting and classic conventions of an economic hitman has been on the New York Times bestseller list for more than 70 weeks selling over 2 million copies you you just are everywhere, John. Your books are amazing. You are well-known. You have so much to share with us. First off, I want to say welcome. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Paula. It's wonderful to be with you. I really appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Oh, I am just honored. I would love for you to begin with just a bit of your, for those that, that don't know you, a bit of your background and kind of what brought you to where you are today, John.
1: Well, if uh, go back far enough, back in the late 60s, early 70s, I was a Peace Corps volunteer deep in the Amazon rainforest, uh, living with people that are the, the, the Schwa people. There are, hundred, there are hunters and gatherers in those days, very traditional living. It was a very new and different experience for me. I'd recently graduated from business school <laughs> and... Uh, I got very ill at one point. I was dying. I couldn't keep any food down. I couldn't stand up, even. And I was a, a, a very long walk through a dense jungle to the nearest road, and then another two days in a rickety old bus, if I could find one, to the nearest medical doctor. There was no way I could do that. Um, and uh, to, to make a long story short, in the book you just showed, has the, has a the long story in, it, in some detail. A schwa shaman. Uh, cured me that night, and he, how he did this was he took me on a, a um, what we call a shamanic journey or vision quest. And on that vision quest, I am out there and I'm seeing this kind of hazy image in front of me. <clears throat> the shaman says, "Touch the jaguar," and I looked around like, "Oh my God, where's the jaguar? There's a jaguar in the jungle," and 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 he, and uh, then I realized that as this vision quest I was seeing this this nebulous kind of image forming into a jaguar's face. And uh, and so I he kept saying, touch that jaguar, touch it. Don't be afraid of it, touch it. So I just stuck my hand out, and as I did so, I heard this voice saying, um, the food and drink will kill you. It was like my mother's voice. And I realized that, you know, I've been I've been raised with a family that goes back uh, almost 300 years in uh, in New England. Uh, we were very hygienic, washed our hands a lot, uh, ate very mild foods, and now suddenly I'm living with people that have never seen a bar of soap, eating some very strange foods. For one thing, in the Amazon, you don't drink river water because the rivers are filled with organic matter. People know that it's not safe to drink the water, so they drink something called chicha, which is a kind of beer. It's made by women chewing and spitting the manioc root and, and their saliva helps set up a fermentation process. It's a, and then it starts alcoholic. And so then you could add water to it and drink it. It's mild alcoholic, kind of like a, a beer. And, uh, they do, so that's what you drink. So I'm drinking, you have to rehydrate a lot in the Amazon. So I'm drinking a lot of spit beer. And I'm eating a lot of very strange foods, live, squirming grubs, which is a delicacy. And I realized on this vision quest that every time I ate these things or drank this spit beer, there was this voice saying, son, it'll kill you, like my mother or somebody. And when I touched the jaguar, I clearly saw that. And the next images that I saw were how how healthy the schwa are. You know, the men are all built like Tarzan, they, they, they're hunters. And, and uh, the women, I was in my early 30s, uh, sorry, early 20s. Uh, the, women were, the women were looking very good. And people live to be very old, unless they die in a hunting accident or a snake bite or something like that. So on this vision quest, I saw that it wasn't the food and drink that was killing me, it was my perception. And I would, I recovered very quickly. The shaman then required that I become his apprentice in payment for what he'd done. And I had no interest, you know. I'd never even heard of a shaman until I got there. I had graduated from business school. It's 1969. Nobody's heard of shamans, really. And there was no future in (laughs) shamanism. There is now. But I graduated from business school. I had no interest, but the guy saved my life. So I I did it, I studied with him, I became his apprentice for over a year, (laughs) Excuse me. and after that I went back and did what I'd been trained to do, which is become an economist, I traveled around the world, and every opportunity I had I, I started studying with shamans in places like Indonesia and Iran and Egypt and all over Latin America, and what I learned was what this first shaman taught me is that our reality is molded by our perceptions. So, if you think about it, Paula, uh, there is no United States, there's no Canada, Uh, there's no culture, there's no religion, there are no corporations, there's no economy except as we perceive it. And when enough people accept a perception or codify it into law, it has a huge impact on reality. And that's the shamanic concept, we change things by changing our perception. It's also modern psychology, modern psychotherapy is based on that, quantum physics. Corporate marketing, all of these things are based on on per- changing perceptions, yes. and that was a very, very important uh, aspect for me. After that, I, I did what I had been trained to do when I got out of the Peace Corps. I, I became an economist. I became the chief economist. I did work that we call today uh, that of an economic hitman. Which again use perception, and I can go into that in more detail if you want. But that's uh, kind of the beginning of the story, and it's had an influence on me ever since. The power of perception, of course, writers, artists uh, draw on perception changes all the time. That's what they're. That's that's what we do. We create perceptions, yeah. which then impact reality.
0: Oh, John, I love that. And personally, I just think shamanism is so amazing and powerful. I'm wearing my Peru shirt. I I went to Peru years ago for Reiki training and I met an amazing shaman and had time with him. And you're right, he was so buff. I mean, he was so physically healthy and buff. And that intrigued me. So I took some shamanism training, not near I'm sure what you did, but it changed my life, John. I literally came home from Sedona, Arizona, and just said, I see through new eyes. It it really is fascinating, isn't it?
1: It is. And you know, so I wrote five books on shamanism, shapeshifting the world of Zazidreman, five books in total. And then I wrote Confessions of an Economic Hitman, which became, as you pointed out, a very big bestseller, over 2 million copies, 30-some-odd languages. And three other books on, on international economics and intrigue. Um, and you know it was interesting because these two genres seem very different and I would speak at places about shamanism and, and, and somebody would ask in the audience like, well are you the same guy that wrote those books on <laughs> like, Confessions of an Economic Hitman? And I'd speak at international economic forums, which I was also invited to do. And somebody asked, well, you're the same guy that wrote the Shaman books? And it was like, these are two different worlds. Mm
0: -hmm. To me,
1: they never were two different worlds. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But So that's why I really wrote the book that you just held up, uh, Touching the Jaguar, Transforming Fear into Action to Change Your Life and the World. Mm -hmm. And this book is a bridge between those two genres. Uh, And I always realized that there was a total bridge because my economic books basically go to to the idea that we've created an economic system. It's really a governmental, social economic system that uh, is a failing us. It's what we call a death economy, an economic system that's consuming itself into extinction. It's, It's ravaging its own resources. And we need to change that to what we could call a life economy, an economic system that, Regenerates destroyed environments, cleans up pollution, and uh, recycles, and creates new technologies that don't ravage the environment. That that, that you know, draw on the air, that draw on sun, that draw on wind to do to do things. Uh, a whole new economic system, and the way to get from one to the other is by is through um, changing perception, because the perception that controls the death economy is one that. We have to maximize short-term, consum- short-term profits, regardless of the social and environmental costs for businesses. And for us as individuals, maximize our short-term materialistic consumption. Mm-hmm. And the new, the life economy, based on the idea that we look for the long-term, that we maximize long-term benefits for people and nature, uh, and that drives the corporations, that we, we we pay investors decent rates of return to invest in things that, that clean up pollution, that regenerate destroyed environments, and so on and so forth. And all it takes to make that transition, really, is a change of perception from, from the goal of maximizing short-term profits to the goal of maximizing long-term benefits. And basically, what we're creating, what we're trying to create here is an, is the type of uh, Economy, the type of social, governmental, and economic system that has driven indigenous cultures forever and drove all of our ancestors. That, you know, throughout the 250,000 years we've been humans on this planet, for most of those years, we've been living in a life economy. It's only been in a relatively recent uh, human history that we've moved away from that. And so it's all about perception. It's interesting.
0: Yes. So our perception, really, I would say that. Affects us on the moves we're gonna make, the thoughts we're gonna have, everything, doesn't it? It it sets the tone of of where we go. What John? What would you say to to the audience out there who is struggling right now with with you know the coronavirus and you know, fearful of the future. What, what would you say about that?
1: Well, Paula, that's a great question, and that's it's fascinating. That I, of course, when I wrote uh, Touching the Jaguar, I had no idea that this coronavirus would hit us all like this. I had no idea it would hit us at all. But in a way, it's a, it's a book for these times because it really gets into how we transform fear. That's the subtitle, transforming fear into action to change your life and the world. And the book, although it's, it, it tells a lot of stories, I write, I'm a storyteller, true stories, um, it also gets into a whole process by which we deal with this. And um, w- one of the things that we, it, it's touching the jaguar comes from uh, this idea that, that the shaman taught me that when, we, when there's something out there that, w- that we fear, when we know we need to change ourselves or we change something, but we fear the change, there's something we fear. And if we run from that fear, it it haunts us, it chases us. But if we touch it, it gives us energy and wisdom. And it gives us the ability to to create change. And so, um, for example, someone sitting at home right now saying, oh my God, I cannot keep self-isolating like this. I can't go on for another month or even another week or two months or three months. I can't do it. I'm a social animal. That's... That's scary, that's very scary. But if we touch that jaguar, if we really really go into that, what is this fear all about, and what does it offer us? And then we realize, well, boy, I always wanted to learn to play the flute. I got a flute over here in this drawer, and I can go online and, and learn how to play the flute online. Or I always wanted to read these books, or write a book, or um, spend time on the telephone talking to my relatives who are in another country or whatever it is if we, if we touch the jaguar that says oh being in our houses like all this time is scary but we, we then realize well, well wait a minute I've always wanted this I've always said what if I didn't have to get up and go to the office what if I didn't have to get up and do this if I could just stay home and read more or yeah. play the flute or whatever it is
0: and that's- so that's an example
1: of touching the jaguar
0: yeah, that and that totally turns it around, doesn't it, John? It goes from oh, this is making me nuts to oh my gosh, look at what I'm creating. Look at what I'm accomplishing. I'm I'm working towards a dream that I had stopped thinking about. You know, yeah. really you know, with the extra time and that it it totally shifts it, doesn't it?
1: It does. And there's a process outlined in the book, which actually boils down to a, a daily practice you can do for ten minutes every day, or once a week, or whenever you feel like. It, it doesn't have to be every day, but um, and it's a you know I can't get into all the detail here, but I can summarize it. Um, and it. And and incidentally, because the book doesn't actually come out until June 16th, you can pre-order it now. And if you do, uh, you get free uh, a free webinar that I'm uh, an online course I'm teaching. Um, On April 24th, it it goes into this because I felt that even though the book doesn't come out, the process is an important one for people to have right now when they're going through this. So if you go to my website, johnperkins.org or touchingthejaguarbook.com. But the process, in summary, it's really each one of us needs to ask ourselves, what is my purpose? what will bring me the greatest satisfaction in life? What do I want to do for the rest of my life? If I'm lying on that proverbial deathbed looking back, what am I most going to celebrate about what I did with my life or what I most regret that I didn't do? What is that thing? And then you ask yourself also, uh, and how would that, what I want to do and do for the rest of my life, how might that also help? the greater cause, creative life economy, help my children, my grandchildren, or whatever, future generations. So tie it in with the global. That's the second question. How does this tie in? And I'll give you an example. So what I like to do, my favorite thing to do in life is write. I love to write. And so that's my favorite thing. So how do I tie that in with the larger issue? Well, I write stories about the death, transforming the death economy into a life economy and inspiring people, empowering people to move forward with their dream. So the second question, question. Now the third question is: What are the jaguars that stand in my way? What are the blockages? What's kept me from doing this? And as a writer, so again going into the personal example, uh, when I was in high school, I was I won short story prizes. I was editor of my newspaper. I was considered a good writer. But when I my freshman year in college, I had a well-known writer as an English teacher, and he didn't like my writing. He gave me Cs. It was incredibly discouraging to me. It hit me in my heart. My favorite thing, writing, he's telling me I'm not a good writer and I respected the guy. I quit school. I quit college. And eventually I went back, but I didn't study English anymore. I, I went to business school. I studied business. I studied economics because I just didn't want the, have the thing I thought was most important to criticize. So I stopped doing it. So that was a jaguar, that voice, you know, you can't write. That guy speaking to me, you can't write. Just like my mother when I was in the Amazon, that's food will make you, will kill you. Um, and the jaguar I had, I touched at that point was at some point I realized, well, this guy is just, he's just a human being. He's, he, maybe he's wrong. And I realized that he had also been very critical of Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan is a writer. Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize in Literature. <laughs> by the lyrics of his song, for his poetry, et cetera. And so, you know, I, it struck me, this is just one voice. I, I don't need to listen to that. Just because he says my writing isn't any good doesn't mean it isn't. And so that was touching that jaguar and saying, look, I can, I can write. And maybe the fact he didn't write my writing actually empowers me because, you know, he was looking at traditional things more than I was. Mm-hmm. And then the last question we ask ourselves is, uh, what actions do I take to realize my goal, my dream, my bliss. And for a writer, it's, you gotta write every day. If you know, you can take a few days off, but you know, you gotta write even when you're not inspired and to realize that, and then I now realize that, you know, I write maybe a thousand pages for every page that ever gets published, you keep writing. It's like if you're a concert pianist, you you, you practice for a thousand hours before you you go on the concert stage. If you're a professional tennis player, you practice for a thousand hours for every hour you spend on the professional court. So writers have to do the same thing. So there's those five questions, what do I almost want out of the rest of my life? Uh, How do I tie that in with a larger issue that I can help other people? Two, and three is what are the jaguars, the barriers keeping me from doing that? Four, how do I touch those jaguars? How do I change my perception so that I can realize a new reality? And five is what actions do we take to actually make this reality move forward? And everybody can take care of this. You know, I, I use the writer because that's what I am. But if you're a carpenter, you say, "I love to work with wood. I want to do that, and I want to do it to help the world." So I'm going, to, I'm going to get convinced my clients to use sustainable materials whenever possible. The barrier is. My clients don't want to pay anymore and they might have to for sustainable material. The Jaguar I touch, I realize I tell my clients it's not a cost, it's an investment. They're investing in the future for themselves, their kids and their grandchildren when they use sustainable products, and then the action to take is get out there and do it. <laughs> no matter who you are, what you are, a parent, a teacher, whatever you are, uh, you can apply these, and, and there's a process that then comes down to a, a little 10-minute practice you can do every day or once a week, and and I go into that in detail in the April 29th workshop, so I hope some of your people will join me for that, and it's also in the book, but it comes out in, in June.
0: John, those are powerful points. Oh, every one of those, I love it, wow, and you know, that really is something, you know, I love what you said about your teacher, because gosh, it can be so easy for us to get criticism from, from one person or something, and it's like, we just let that stop us, yes.
1: Yeah, yeah. and you know, here's a Another interesting I mean example again it's a, it's a personal one but that's probably the easiest way to speak and not pass judgment on others uh, Confessions of an economic hitman was rejected by 39 publishers oh. I get 39 rejection letters I'd already published five books on shamanism but you know not, not you know with a, a house that specialized yeah. a publishing house that specialized in that and now I'm going out there to the random houses the penguins and so on. Thirty-nine rejection letters, and I got to tell you, after about the fifth or sixth <laughs> rejection letter, the temptation is to say that I can with this. I'm walking away. I don't, I don't want. Any, I don't want any more of these letters. But I, I thought back to that time with that English teacher, and and so here's another jaguar I had to touch that. These editors, what do they know? You know? Maybe they're just afraid of the politics of the book. Maybe this. Maybe that's one editor. Maybe another editor had a had a had a an argument with her husband uh, at breakfast and this was in a really bad mood and just throw everything into the rejection pile. Uh, maybe someone else has published a similar book. They thought it was similar last month, so not, they don't want to do this one. Uh, and, and, and I just kept telling myself that, that that was not a judgment of the book itself, which proved to be true because finally a small house bought it. And within the first couple of weeks, it went to number four on Amazon, and then it went to the New York Times bestseller list and stayed there for a year and a half. So it was (laughs) so the action I had to take was to keep sending the book out uh, despite rejecting letters. Oh my
0: gosh, John, I love it! Oh my gosh, that is so inspiring. We have about four minutes left in the show. John, what last words or thoughts do you want to leave with everyone today?
1: Well, I think, Paula, it's good for all your listeners to to realize that we live at a very blessed time. Uh, Mother Earth, Pachamama, is speaking to us. And uh, she's been letting us know that we can't continue on this route of destroying our resources and destroying life as we know it any longer. She's been sending us earthquakes and... And tsunamis and and uh, hurricanes and other once in one hundred year events every year or so, but we haven't listened really, you know. We've said, well, if I survive the hurricane or whatever it is, uh, within a few days or maybe it'll take a couple of weeks, the outside world will come to my rescue, bottle water, food, and the leader will say, well, let's rebuild. We're going to be better than ever. So it's been this localized reaction that we can get back to normal, but. The virus has, is global, nobody has escaped it, there is no outside world. And I think the message has become very clear that we need to change. We, we've seen that, you know, the people in Los Angeles are suddenly seeing stars at night, and, and, and we've all seen the satellite images over China of how pollution's cleaned up. And we're we're getting a very, very, very strong message that we can't return to the old normal. We've got to move into a new normal, a normal that, 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 that depends a lot more on the kind of media rather than people flying off to meetings. I just had a board meeting uh, with about, about a dozen other people. Normally we all fly or, or drive cars to get to this meeting. Now we're doing it this way. And, and it was much more efficient, actually. Yeah. So we're, we're truly learning that, we, that we've we got to change. We've got to move. And it's about moving into this life economy. That's what it's all about. Less fossil fuels, less, less industry that, that, that pollutes, less ravaging the Earth. I really hope that we get the message this time. There will be a reaction against that, you know, the status quo uh, will we'll say, well, now we're going to get back to normal. They're already beginning to say that in the United States. We've got politicians saying, Look, we'll, let's get back to work, let's get back to normal. Uh, I, I think enough people realize that we can't get back to normal. We create a new normal, and it's a beautiful normal. It's not going, it's not going back to live in caves, it's creating this economic system that pays people to clean up pollution we pay people to do this with full employment and to, to regenerate destroyed environments and to come into new technologies and to, and to grow foods more locally and to become much more locally independent while at the same time we realize that it's important to bring the world together at times like this to to combat things like the virus. If the United States and China had cooperated more at the very beginning and other countries had, it wouldn't have reached this, this stage. To spend less money on the military and more money on healthcare and, and support systems for people on the planet. So I, I say to people, my, my final my message would be, realize that you're born at this amazing time in history where we're having these experiences. You're blessed to be part of it and follow your heart. What do you really, really want to do for the rest of your life? And how will it help create a system that future generations will look back at and thank you for thank all of us for it's exciting it's a beautiful time to be alive it's not a. And it's a time that if we have those fears and everybody has fears touch them and see what the gift is they give you this this virus is not an enemy so much it's an ally that's driving us to really look at ourselves and the way we relate to our planet
0: yes oh i love that message john i love that message because we are shifting and moving into something that we can create a much, a lot of better things in our lives and, and taking care of our planet and really doing some great stuff. John, this has been so great. I've enjoyed you so much and so happy to share you with my awesome audience. I'm just really grateful.
1: Well, Thank you, Paula, and for having me here. And uh, thank you for all that you do. It's so important that you do this. And I'm sure you've had to touch a bunch of jaguars to get to do, to, to, to do this show. Uh, you've done that and you're taking the actions, and so you're serving as a wonderful model for people too. And that's something you might want to talk about on future shows, but thank you so much for, for all that you do. Really thank appreciate it. Thank
0: you, John. Together we're a team. Yeah. Yes. Oh, well. Everyone, thank you so much for joining us. Love, hugs, and blessings. John, love, hugs, and blessings.